0: Hello everyone and welcome. I'm very happy to have several professionals from the Leafwing Center as my guests today. Leafwing Center provides children with autism the chance to learn and become more independent. The organization is recognized for aiding the children they serve by using research based on applied behavior analysis. And their goal is to play a critical role in the lives of these families through comprehensive and intensive interventions. Leafwing Center's programs for children on the autism spectrum address each area where these children are affected and experience difficulty, be it at home or in school. Our format will be a bit different today, in that I will be introducing each of the specialists individually who, in turn, will discuss a particular topic that they've chosen to cover. So, John, let's begin with you. John Lubers is a doctoral-level behavioral analyst. He has been a board-certified behavior analyst since 1999. Dr. Lubers has worked with individuals with autism spectrum disorders for over 25 years. So, John, your topic is about ABA programs. Tell me, when you start an ABA program, what should you reasonably expect from your service provider?
1: Mm, Gilda, yeah. First of all, thank you so much for um, graciously having me on your show. Um, My pleasure. um, It's a great question that we talk about um, what you should expect because so often our families come to us really not knowing what to expect. And over the years that we have worked with families, we found that it's important to really provide an orientation. Um, so what I think the very first thing that a family should expect from their ABA provider is sort of a introductory phone call or office communication or some sort of um, communication that would focus on an orientation to services. So the nature of that call would be, you know, hello, mom or dad, um, I'm John and I'm from, you know, one, two, three company. And I just want to tell you a little bit about um, uh, applied behavior analysis, what it is, how it works, what you can expect, um, how it's usually done by a team of people, um, how it is um, usually a, you know, somewhere there's some amount of time that you contribute to or you, you have to. Um, dedicate to it both within the week and over uh, the months or years, Um, and there's different components to it, so that all kind of needs to be explained because there's usually so many things that are um, swirling around in in, uh, a parent's head about what do they do. So first thing would be a really good orientation to what ABA is and what to expect and that The second um, important component, and this is a sort of a um, foundational component for applied behavior analysis, that is a comprehensive functional assessment. You know that old adage, measure twice, cut once? Well, that Mm -hmm. really holds true in ABA. We really look at that. Um, We really want to know exactly where our... um, our, our client is, whether that's a child or an adult, we want to know what their skills are, what skills are missing, what's important to the family, what skills or what things need to be addressed. We want to have frequencies and, and numbers and things that we can count and measure so that we can really, um, on a granular level, look at progress. So um, a comprehensive functional assessment is usually a really important part um, and should be one of those foundational parts for um, uh, a good intervention and a good experience. Um, I think another thing that we so often in our practice, we have families, um, they may have some experience seeing their family care um, physician or their pediatrician or a speech therapist. And so if they're not already familiar with ABA, sometimes they'll come to us kind of expecting, based on previous experience, that it'll be usually one person. Um, So often in these comprehensive intensive programs for children or younger folks with autism spectrum disorders is the interventions delivered by a team of people. And so it's it's possible that your son or daughter um, may have three, two, three, four, five people working with them on all the things that they need to have work with. So that's sometimes surprising. Another thing that's surprising is, you know, um, it's intensive. So one of the natures, I think the recommendations now um, for evidence-based practice are 25-plus hours per week. That's not to say that um, you can't get success and progress with less than that. You absolutely can. But the best case or the best responders generally are that that those uh, individuals that receive 25 or more hours per week. So that oftentimes is something that's quite mm, surprising or um, um, unknown, also unknown to families. The, oh, oh, it is, you know, often I'll get the response, oh, that is that is um, rather intense. You know, that that's a lot, and it's a big commitment. So, um, also, um, in general, ABA, these interventions are mm, time intensive over the calendar, meaning that in most cases, or in a lot of cases, these interventions take months to years. And so a lot of times that's a a, a fact or a concept that our families don't know. So kind of, you know, um, that's important for our families to take into consideration as well. Um, some additional things that, um, um, that are really important and what a family could expect is um, most of us in applied behavior analysis are very, very data oriented, meaning that everything that we do with our clients, we usually record some form of data, whether that be a frequency, a correct, an incorrect, a duration, any, any um, dimension of behavior, we'll spend um, effort and time collecting data. Um, and that's something that, you know, that's not so common outside of our field of applied behavior analysis. Um, there are data collected, but we really take it to the, um, to the extreme in terms of what we do. Um, I think another thing for parents to expect, Gilda, would be um, something we refer to as progress monitoring or really looking at the data and making what we in ABA call data-based decisions. So looking to see if something is working, you know, based on the data, the numbers that we're collecting, and then um, uh, making our decisions on where we're going to go in the future or how we're going to change things based on those data. Um, um, Also, what a parent should probably expect, and and this could vary depending on the type of intervention they get. Um, but, um, one of the things that they would probably expect and that we do so often with our um, uh, intensive interventions for children on the spectrum, is there's a component of intervention where the team works directly with the child, and there's a component of the intervention where the uh, um, usually the behavior analyst or the program supervisor. Will work with the parents or caregivers, and sometimes there's extended family grandparents um, sometimes we have um, dual dual households and uh, and or single parent families and that so whoever is responsible for caregiving and um, uh, going to be interacting with the client, the child in some manner, some important manner, um, usually effort is made to try to train them on the approaches that we're using. Um, Effort is made to try to teach them to utilize and generalize the skills that the child is learning. Um, And so we call that often parent training or parent education. Um, And then the last thing I think um, that a, a, a parent would expect in this type of intervention would be um that there's what we call supervision or program supervision that, like I said, is usually done by a behavior analyst, and they typically come out and will be there while treatment is happening and uh, it'll be that the the behavior analyst's goals will be there to just look in and, and evaluate um treatment fidelity, and what that is treatment fidelity is. Um, That concept is, you know, what we're trying to do, the intervention that we're trying to do, is that really happening as we've intended it to, Um, and looking to kind of help make um, some improvements on the treatment approach by the behavior technicians or the people that are working directly with the children. That's another thing that's kind of a hallmark in a behavior analysis is that we're very heavy on feedback and and, uh, oversight. Um, so, in a nutshell, I think those would be sort of the hallmarks of the things. I know that's an awful lot to to digest at any one time, but those would be sort of the, the major takeaways on what any parent would expect um, um, uh, given them starting an ABA program with their loved one.
0: Well, John, thank you for that really excellent explanation. Uh, a few questions popped into my, my mind while you were talking. Um, Mm -hmm. First of all, I think that the parent education is is excellent. I think that is absolutely essential so that the the parent can support the training and and education and programs that you all are uh, teaching and implementing with the child so that they can be supported outside the environment when they're with you, wherever they happen to be at home or out out in, in public or in school or wherever they happen to be. Um, So I think that's a wonderful aspect of the program that you offer. Um, The 24 hours a week that you mention... Uh, I think mm-hmm. parents might wonder where are those hours spent. Uh, do they? Does the child come to you? Do you go to the child in their environment where they happen to be? How how does that uh, dynamic work? And um, also, a parent might wonder how long is the ramp up period. In other words, um, the the initial steps that you were talking about, the initial evaluations and so forth. How long does that generally take until? you really get into the nitty gritty of the program itself.
1: Great questions, yeah. The, the nature of um, um, the intervention and where it takes place um, probably has um, two, two factors that would dictate that. The first would be, a uh, very practical factor, would be sort of the, the, the way that um, your ABA provider practices. Sometimes they have center-based programs, sometimes they have home-based programs, sometimes there's school-based programs, and sometimes there's programs that incorporate all three environments. And so um, um, part of that would be dictated a little bit by the ABA provider, but secondarily, and maybe even probably more important, is really the nature of the need by the client, and so the child. And so, if um, in, in we've had clients, and, and I'm sure many ABA providers have had clients, where in one environment behavior is not or challenges are not evidenced, but in another environment they are. So typically, the intervention would focus on those um, areas, you know, um, in the community. I think you were alluding to this, Gilda, about. Um, a minute ago about um, parent training is a lot of times a family or a parent will come to us and say, um, you know, uh, I just can't go to Walmart, I can't make it up and down the aisles, or I can't go to Target or the gas station or something like that, and I need um, some help. And In those situations, um, a lot of uh, ABA providers that have that community intervention approach can go and work with the families, with the parents, and help them with strategies on how to um, handle those unique environments, and they're so unique and different. Um, your other question was also a really good question, and that was about what is the ramp-up period, and, um, and the ramp-up period you know, probably takes into consideration two things. The first part, I think, Um, or I'm I'm sure um, it would take into consideration, is the assessment. And the assessment is, in terms of, you know, just calendar time, it can take anywhere from maybe I would just, this is a ballpark figure, these are some loose parameters, but maybe one week to maybe two months. Mm -hmm. And um, the difference in that between the one week and the two months would be, um, the complexity of the problems and what's going on with the with the client, and and the number of observations that needed to to take place, also the environments that needed to be seen. So if you can imagine, um, if this was a very young child and they weren't going to school and they were just at home only, and intervention was going to take place, treatment was going to be at home only. Generally one environment, the home would be sufficient. There's no need to see the um, client in other environments. But if you're talking a, maybe a middle school age child that has um, behaviors in some classes and others that's um, you know needing to perform some skills in the community, that they don't, and that is having maybe some challenges or some needs at home, there might be three environments there that needed to be observed and scheduled. Um, And then last but not least is, you know, there's a lot of information gathering and collecting during assessments, Gilda, and that is everything from adaptive behavior measures to um, questionnaires, Very practical information like, you know, um, informed consents and things of that nature. So that takes some time a lot of times for parents to work through because they're juggling, you know, their their lives and their parenting responsibilities and everything. And now an ABA provider is presenting with a bunch of information that they need to collect or work through with them. So sometimes that can dictate um, or it can require some time. So I think just a parent could reasonably expect Um, You know, if I were to, the range being maybe one week to two months, I would say probably the average to expect would be about one month turnaround time.
0: All right. Well, thank you for clarifying that, John. I appreciate that. Uh, Sivan, let's move on to you. Uh, Sivan Selikian is a board-certified behavior analyst who provides ABA services for children, teenagers, and adults at the Leafwing Center. His professional activities include conducting assessments, Designing Behavior Intervention and Skill-Building Programs, and Mentoring Behavior Technicians. Sivan, your topic is talking about the components of a good ABA program. What are some of those components for children with autism that would, in your opinion, comprise a program that was well-structured and in the best interest of the client?
2: First off, Gilda, thank you so much for having us on your podcast. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: And it's a pleasure to have you.
2: (laughs) Thank you. So um, there are several components of a good ABA program for children with autism, and I'd like to go through them with hopes that it will help some of the families and and caregivers and parents out there identify effective and, and good programs, because there are so many. And these are in no particular order of hierarchy. I think they're all important and we should be aware of them. So the first component of a good ABA program is a board certified behavior analyst, the BCBA, who designs and supervises the program. So a BCBA is a person who has met the educational and professional training requirements established by the Behavior Analysis Certification Board. In addition, to simply being a BCBA, it's also usually recommended that the supervising BCBA has experience with the behaviors and skill deficits, if there are any, of the particular client that they'll be working with. We know autism spectrum disorder can be very variable. We might be dealing with selective eating or aggressive behaviors, possibly uh, communication or speech delays. So. In addition to being a BCBA, it's also important that that individual has experience in that particular area of concern. The second common characteristic of an effective ABA program is a detailed and thorough assessment of the learner's behavioral and clinical needs. And John touched on this earlier, actually, in in detail. And, And this is one of the most important things, especially at the beginning of a program, is the Functional Behavior Assessment, the FBA as it's typically referred to. And basically this is an information gathering process. It's where it all begins. Usually it'll include direct observation of the client in their natural environments, whether that be at home or school or out in the community. It'll include interviews with parents and caregivers, some record review um, questionnaires, such as the Fineland or the VB map, which we won't get into today, and other methods as well. It's also important to note that assessments should not only occur before the onset of treatment, but it should be ongoing throughout treatment. And what that helps us do is to ensure that the child's goals remain up to date and relevant and individualized from the beginning and all the way through. So after the assessment will come a, a program Plan. Basically, we're looking for meaningful and objectively defined skill development and behavioral goals. So, goals in ABA typically will fall under two general categories. We will have our skill development goals, and then we will have our behavioral goals. So, skill development goals are typically designed to address a child's skill deficits and they'll be based on their current needs. And this will vary widely from individual to individual. It might include areas such as writing, uh, object identification, self-help skills like tying shoes, brushing teeth, maybe social skills, initiating conversation, pretend play, things like that, and the list goes on. Behavioral goals will involve the reduction of challenging and undesirable behaviors, while also simultaneously teaching desirable replacement behaviors. So a good ABA program will not only attempt to lower or reduce the undesirable undesirable behaviors, but also to replace them with desirable replacement behaviors. And one of the main purposes of the FBA, the assessment is to identify the function of the challenging behavior. What we mean by function is the purpose. What does the behavior serve? What is the purpose of it? What does the child gain from engaging in that behavior? Once we identify the function, and sometimes there may be more than one for a particular behavior, then we can create a behavior intervention plan that will use a variety of techniques to reduce the challenging behavior And replace the challenging behavior with socially acceptable and functionally equivalent alternatives. And not to go too much into detail about that stuff right now, but that might include something like teaching a child to ask for help or to ask for a break instead of engaging in a tantrum when they're presented with homework or a task or, or something like that. Um, Moving on from that, another part of establishing goals in ABA is is we want to choose objective goals. And this is really important in ABA, as John pointed out earlier. We're very big on data collection. We're very big on measurement. And it's really important to establish goals that are objective and clear and measurable because if they're not, we will not know if we're making any progress. So we always want to establish very clear, very objective goals that we can measure. For example, we don't want to establish a goal such as teach Johnny social skills, because that's too vague. We won't know if we're making progress. We won't be able to measure that. Rather, we'd want to establish a goal such as John will learn to initiate ball play games with his friends at school during recess time with 90% accuracy over a period of one month. It's usually difficult or even impossible to see if the child's making any progress if we don't have goals that are clear, objective, and measurable. So good ABA programs should have this in place. The next really important component of a good ABA program, which um, we touched on earlier as well, is measurement and data collection. Data collection and frequent review of progress are critical to effective ABA programs. Um, When information on child's progress is collected while they're learning the task, then we know if they're progressing towards the goal. Without data collection, we simply can't make sound clinical decisions. And that's um, another one of the reasons why data collection is so important in, in applied behavior analysis. A good ABA program should also include numerous ABA techniques and principles into teaching a child to learn. ABA is a vast knowledge base. There are so many components. There's so many different teaching methods that we don't usually want to limit an ABA program to one or two techniques. We want to incorporate positive reinforcement always. We may want to incorporate discrete trial teaching, uh, naturalistic teaching create incidental learning opportunities, maybe some play-based learning. And the list goes on. So a good ABA program will encompass a variety of of teaching methods. Also, one of the main goals of ABA is to promote independence. Ultimately, we wanna teach skills that a child can use to live a better life, to live a more independent life. And with that, once we teach a child the skills that they need to learn or that, you know, would be clinically sound for them to learn, we want to expect them to perform those independently thereafter. These might include tying shoes, brushing teeth, um, writing words, reading, answering questions. So in the beginning, there might be a lot of assistance provided while these items are being learned. But after a certain point, we do want to promote the independence so that A child can become more independent and can navigate their surroundings without as much help. The next two characteristics of a good ABA program are that the program provides many learning opportunities for the child and also that the intervention is consistent. What do we mean by many learning opportunities? It's not enough that a child merely attends an ABA session with an ABA teacher present we wanna squeeze as much as possible out of those one-on-one sessions. Even when programs or skill-based programs are not being targeted, there's always a learning opportunity there. Even during playtime, a lot of learning can occur during play and sometimes as adults, we may not notice it or realize it, but even during playtime, we can work on areas such as sharing and and turn-taking following instructions, reciprocal conversation, social skills, and and so on. So a good ABA program will always try to get the most output or the maximum amount of learning in every session and to always attempt to further the skill from where it was in the last session to one step closer in independence in the current session. Now, when I mentioned consistency, that not only refers to the number of treatment hours, but also to the idea that all team members are teaching a child using the same principles and techniques. And I know John mentioned treatment fidelity earlier, and, and basically that's an important part of any ABA program. We want to make sure we're all on the same page. We don't want teacher one doing something drastically different from teacher two, because then we'd be working upstream against one another, and ultimately the child um, will be affected by that. So with that, um, even though different people might work with a child within a week, the child's teaching should typically mimic that as if only one teacher was present the whole time. For example, if teacher number one is teaching a child the first step of brushing their teeth, which is, let's say, to put toothpaste on top of a toothbrush, teacher number two should continue where teacher number one finished on the next session, on the next day. And then teacher number three should pick up where teacher number two left off and so on. And this actually also shows why data collection and measurement is so important. If we're not all taking data on the team, then the next teacher scheduled to work with the child will not be informed about what step to pick up from and what techniques to use. Another good component of a ABA program, of a good ABA program, is the use of positive reinforcement. Positive reinforcement should be built into any ABA program. It is not only an ethical requirement, but it also creates an environment that is enriched where the child has frequent access to reinforcement and stimulating activities. And ultimately what we're trying to do with that is to create a positive and fun environment in which learning is desirable. And the child is learning even if they don't realize that they're learning. So with that, it's important that a child be in a positive learning environment so that they're praised for their accomplishments and always motivated to keep on learning. Typically, we want the kids to be having fun during their sessions, even though a lot is expected from them. So therefore, the positive reinforcement is essential. Generalization, that is another key component of an effective ABA program. Generalization refers to the concept that a child will demonstrate what they've learned in the ABA session outside of the ABA session also, and also that a child will demonstrate what they've learned in the ABA session with their teacher, with other individuals as well. So we want the learning that takes place in an ABA session to spread to other environments, to spread to other people, to spread to other stimuli or objects that we use. Without generalization, A child will only be able to demonstrate a skill with one specific person at a specific place at a specific time and ultimately that will not be a meaningful result. Generally speaking, it's probably more important for a child to do one skill or one thing with anyone and everyone rather than a hundred things with only one person in one place at one specific time. Given the concept of generalization, Good ABA programs will also include parent trainings as a key part to the treatment program. And I know this was discussed earlier, but I want to emphasize that parent training is a critical part of any ABA program. When the ABA team is not present, the parents are there in basically every waking moment of a child's life. We, as behavior analysts, as as RBTs and, and paraprofessionals, want to make sure that parents are equipped with the knowledge and the skills that they need to, to generalize and, and to maintain the results that, that are attained during the ABA sessions. So with that, it's really important that the program supervisor or the behavior analyst of any team meet with parents, um, sometimes even outside of one-on-one sessions, to inform them on the various uh, principles and teaching techniques that are, that are being used to promote progress. Last, but not least, an effective ABA program should hold regular meetings between all team members and the family. And this is just good communication. Uh, And and the purpose for this is really to update a child's curriculum, their, their targets, their goals. We want to continually and consistently collaborate with the families, with other professionals like teachers, speech therapists, psychologists, and so on. This is a way for everybody to stay on the same page, um, for there to be clear communication between all team members, for concerns to be addressed, for goals to be updated. And, and that is probably um, the last item on my list, but I'm sure I missed a few. But um, those, <laughs> I would say, are <laughs> some really important characteristics of a, a good ABA program.
0: Well, thank you, thank you, Savan, for going through all those items and for delineating that for us. I think it's very important for people to understand those elements so that they can uh, truly take advantage of the resource that a good ABA program offers. Uh, Ray, it is now your turn. Ray Reyes has been a board-certified behavior analyst since 2008. Mr. Reyes has worked with individuals living with autism spectrum disorders and other developmental disorders since 2003. And, Ray, you are going to be talking about motivating individuals living with autism, which, as we know, can be very challenging, can be one of the most challenging things, is to motivate an individual. To engage in these type of programs and and in the kinds of things that we want them to learn and that we want to teach them. So, how do you do it? How do you motivate these individuals to engage?
3: Oh, first off, uh, thanks, Gilda, for having us over on your show. Uh, it's a great opportunity to uh, reach out to your listeners out there. But um, right, um, motivation, um, it's. It's a very big topic. you know we can approach it several ways, you know, but for our purpose you know let's put it in, put it in the context of teaching to make it more manageable all right? So yes, for uh, our children receiving aBA services uh, in the home setting or school or community. Um, motivating. These uh, individuals with autism is very important when it comes to teaching. Without motivation, it's going to be very hard. Uh, uh, The teaching process will be very slowed down, if not uh, impossible. Um, We can look at motivation two ways. First, we can look at it uh, as an intrinsic motivation or motivation can be extrinsic in nature intrinsic motivation as the name suggests it's more internal uh more along the lines of i do something because i like doing it um because i get something out of it it makes me feel relaxed it makes me happy so uh, just a general idea of that it's an intrinsic motivator or reinforcer. now the other kind of motivation is more extrinsic and, and as the name suggests These are things or events, you know, that happen outside of our bodies. It can be uh, a paycheck or a credit, money, um, tokens, tickets, the good tickets, um, uh, snacks, food, drinks, uh, all those things. And it's very important, I I believe, as a professional in this field uh, to bring up this topic of motivation, of reinforcers, of rewards. Um, especially for our families who are just about to start um, their aba based services, because for at least from my experience over the years, um, a good number of individuals, uh, families have issues when we are using extrinsic forms of reinforcers in our sessions, when we're teaching their children a specific concept or a specific skill. Um It is unnatural, yes, I have to say it is very unnatural. However, for our children living with autism and other developmental disorders, this intrinsic motivation doesn't really come naturally. You know, they don't learn what the numbers are or the letters of the alphabet because they want to, because they'd like to. What we can do, especially in the beginning uh, phases of the ABA services, is use extrinsic forms of Motivation, motiva- motivators, rewards or reinforcers uh, like snacks, cookies, you know, a little sip of their favorite drink and pairing that with uh, more uh, like social reinforcers, a high five, a labeled praise and whatnot. And really the the goal here is to transition from more extrinsic forms of motivation to a more intrinsic form of uh, motivation and then like i said earlier it doesn't happen naturally at this point you know from that point uh we just kind of like systematically change the way we're using our extrinsic motivators we can do that by you know not giving the reward all the time maybe sometimes and uh kind of like thin it out from uh from there
0: Ray, I would want to thank you for that explanation, and uh, I think you did a, a very good job of basically uh, telling us what the different types of motivations are and and you 're right um, that intrinsic motivation that a lot of us do feel that kind of comes second nature or naturally doesn 't necessarily happen for those individuals who are in the autism spectrum, so finding other ways. To, to get them motivated and to perhaps uh, develop that sense of pride or whatever it, that intrinsic factor is that, that comes uh, more naturally to neurotypical uh, individuals, I think is, is a wonderful thing to be aware of. So thank you for that explanation. Um, and now, last but certainly not least, Manjit, we are on to you. Manjeet Sito is a board-certified behavior analyst. Manjeet has been providing services to individuals living with autism spectrum disorder and other developmental disorders since 2006. Manjeet, you're going to talk to us about the different kinds of behaviors that behavior analysts are interested in and why. And also, can you give us tips? Can you give us uh, some parenting tips? To determine and address why certain behavioral problems happen, maybe kind of getting to the to the root of it and and helping parents understand a little bit better why their children might be engaging in one behavior or another.
4: Of course, thank you for having us on today on your show today, Gilda. Uh, behavior analysts are interested in behaviors which, uh, like Savan said earlier, are observable and measurable. Uh, voluntary behaviors, or what we call operant behaviors, is of particular interest to behavior analysts. Um, this is the kind of behavior that we're primarily primarily concerned with when it comes to helping children with autism. At uh, as it is the type of behavior that can be influenced or learned as a consequence of environmental uh, events. Uh, So operant behavior is any behavior whose future frequency is determined primarily by its history of consequences. So we can manipulate a person's learning of operant or voluntary behaviors by manipulating environmental events. So for example, uh, parents often reward their children for cleaning up their room. Uh, Cleaning a room is a voluntary behavior, and by rewarding such a voluntary behavior, the parent has set up the environment to increase the likelihood that their child will clean up their room again to get rewarded again. So the second type of behavior is involuntary behaviors or reflex. Technically, it's uh, referred to as a respondent behavior. Uh, reflexes are automatic behaviors that are uh, physiological and do not usually are not usually influenced by consequences. Uh, so these are you know, as a person has little or no control in the behavior occurring, uh, things like sneezing, being startled, uh, blinking. Uh, since reflexive behavior is automatic and can't be changed by your uh, environmental events or consequences, this is this type of behavior is rarely the focus of an ABA program. However, in general, behavior analysts have an interest in reducing. Uh, any undesirable challenging behaviors while increasing the desirable uh, behaviors. And, of course, you know, replacement behaviors, which are alternative behaviors that we would like to teach uh, individuals to take place of those challenging behaviors. Uh, These behaviors should serve the same purpose or the same function of the challenging behavior They should be socially appropriate and be easier to engage in than the challenging behaviors. So, just, you know, examples of replacement behaviors instead of, you know, grabbing the toy, being able to ask for it, Um, raising your hand in class instead of calling out, Uh, asking for help when you're doing your homework instead of, you know, just not finishing it up at all. So, those are replacement behaviors that we would want to teach. So. Having said that, uh, we can share some tips on determining why problem behaviors occur. First of all, it's important to figure out uh, why the behavior is happening in the first place. Uh, To implement an intervention without this important information about why it's happening may produce no results or even make the challenging behavior far worse than it was before implementing um, the behavior, the, uh, the intervention. Um, to figure out uh, the behavior's possible function, first we need to take a look at the antecedent. That means whatever it is that happened right before the behavior. And secondly, we also have to pay attention to the consequences that happened while or after the behavior happened. The relationship between the antecedent behavior and the consequence behavior uh, over time may contribute to why a child uh, engages in the problem behavior. So as behavior analysts, we look at four likely reasons to why behaviors occur. And these are access, uh, escape and uh, avoidance, for attention, or for self-stimulation. Although, uh, you know, there are many tools that we use to figure out why the specific function of the behavior is, uh, parents and caregivers can use uh, what we call ABC data analysis, and so that's collecting uh, data on the antecedent, the behavior, and then the consequence. Uh, This is what we use to help um, assess what the function of the problem behavior is. Um, but for complex or intense problem behaviors that you know, pose a hazard to the child or others around them, it's highly advised that you know, a parent or the caregiver seek assistance from a qualified behavior analyst.
0: So, so in other that, words you would you would suggest that the parent maybe even take notes, right? Like a certain behavior is happening and and just jot down this is when it happened, this is what happened before the behavior occurred, this is what happened, you know, during and after, this is how I addressed it so that actually when they perhaps would work with you or when they're engaging in their in the parent education portion of your program, you can make suggestions to them as to how to perhaps approach it differently or what, you know, why, uh, let's say changing perhaps some of the things that would happen before the antecedents, as you put it, making some changes there might actually have a positive effect in terms of decreasing or even eliminating the unwanted behavior. Would I be correct in that? Yes,
4: absolutely, absolutely. So, a part of uh, the assessment, uh, sometimes when I when I'm doing this, I uh, give my parents these ABC data sheets to collect data for us to see. And then, you know, when you sit down and you're going over this with the parent, they look at it and they go, "Oh, right!" Like they see a pattern. And once you see that, then you can start looking into, okay, it is the antecedent. It is what happened before that triggers the behavior. Or, hey, you know what I just noticed? Every time I say no iPad, he has a tantrum. And then, you know, as a parent, sometimes you're like, I don't want to deal with this. And you end up giving exactly what you said you can't have in the first place. But now (laughs) we have learned, okay, you know, I can throw a tantrum. That's a universal problem. It is. It is. (laughs) So, you know, just sitting there looking at all of that, it all kind of falls into place, and then that's where you um, determine what the function of the behavior is once you have the function, and that's where the um, intervention comes into
0: play. Very good. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Manjeet, for that. Uh, at this point, I'd really like to throw it open to all of you, and I'd like to see to ask if there is anything that any of you would like to add that we haven't covered. And what do you think is the most important takeaway that you feel our listeners should have from our conversation?
1: You know, I might add, Gilda, um, that, um, you know, ABA is one of those treatments that is research proven. I don't think any of us said that this afternoon today. Um, it is research proven. So it is one of those treatments that a parent or a family can have confidence in that um, what they're doing, the time they're spending, the energy they're putting into um, this intervention is generally, is supported by research and is generally successful in helping their children. So I think that's an important takeaway. Um, And I might add, like I mentioned earlier, that, um, the, the work is, is it takes, it, the progress and everything takes time. And just to be prepared that um, it's not, it, generally, you don't see a lot of change in a week or a month. It usually takes a while to start to really see the changes and that things are, are small prog, uh, progress steps. And the idea is that we just collect hundreds of those. Or thousands of those progress steps, and then at some point we have a, you know, pull back and look from the big picture perspective. That, that at that point we have a significant amount of progress made with our children. Those would be the two things that I would say would be, you know, some other takeaways for our families.
0: Well, John, what is the best way for our listeners to reach out to you and your organization directly if they have any questions and they want to know more?
1: Well, we'd be happy to answer any questions or provide any information um, that any family or um, caregiver had for us. And I think probably the two best ways to reach us would be either through our our website, which would be uh, www.leafwingcenter.org and I should probably spell that because yes, we've had all sorts of <laughs> we've had all sorts yeah. of misspellings of our name but it's leaf like uh, on a tree l e a f wing like on a bird uh, or a butterfly w i n g and then center like uh, the center of the earth c e n t e r <laughs> and then it's a dot org um, um, not a .com or a .net, but it's a dot .org. So, www.leafwingcenter.org. Or, um, um, if that's uh, not easy, and and some folks prefer phone, we have an 888 number, a toll-free number, and that number is 888-436-2532.
0: And you can repeat that one more time if you like as well.
1: Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, 888
0: Well, Thank you, John, and thank you all so much for taking the time to share this terrific information with me and with our listeners today.
1: Thank you so much, Gilda. Gilda, It was really a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much, Gilda, for having us. It's
2: been a pleasure.
0: And I also want to thank our listeners for spending a part of their day with us. I'm Gilda Evans, reminding you to take care of yourself and that special person in your life.